Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? (laughs) We talk all day, all day long, all the time. (laughs) All right. How are you? I was saying before we started, uh, the people across the street are getting their roof redone, and it's all I've been listening to since the early hours of the morning and yesterday, so I'm a little frazzled on top of all the January 6th news on Thursday. But anyway, we have uh, a very uh, important guest today, but before we get to him, we have to satisfy our listeners' craving for 80s news. (laughs) So this week in 80s history, in 1983, Liz, Ameritech Mobile Communications became the first company to provide mobile phone service to the public. Oh, my gosh. Julie, do you remember the phones used to be like bricks, giant bricks? Remember Wall Street, the movie Wall Street? Yes. (laughs) Michael Douglas was carrying around like a phone that was like a shoebox. It was so big. (laughs) Remember? That's crazy. These kids, they don't know. They don't know what it was like. <laughs> and almost no one had a phone. I mean, that was really, really weird. Or car phones. Remember, car phones had yeah. like uh, the cord that went in the car. <laughs> so you would like have a, a a cord and talk on a corded phone, but you couldn't like take it out of your car. <laughs> that was the no. technology. And I mean, that was like what early 90s the car phones yeah and it seems ancient now like if my daughters got in a car with a car phone like that they'd be like what what the hell is this that would be so funny like just imagining finding a car like buying a used car from the 90s and it's like oh it also comes with this glamorous car phone Um, Also this week in 80s history, 1981, Olivia Newton-John released Physical. What a great song. We love her. I know. I did love her. She's so talented. Um, Hans and Franz made their debut on Saturday (gasps) Night Live. I'm going to pump you up. You up. And Okay. Little Van Halen news. It's Sammy Hagar's 75th birthday. Okay, so that's not Van Halen news. That's Shut just up. Sammy Hagar news. Shut up. Shut your <laughs> that's mouth. That's not Van Halen news. Shut your mouth right now. <laughs> Take Sammy Hagar's name out your mouth. <laughs> God. Happy birthday, Sammy Hagar. We love you. I love you. Liz? I don't. Not so much. I can't drive 55, but that's all I'll give him. <laughs> Liz and I have an ongoing dispute about Van Halen, which which is better, David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? Obviously David Lee Roth, but fine. Whatever. Whatever is right. Um, so today uh, we have with us, we're going to spend uh, the rest of our podcast hour talking to a man named Paul Hodgkins, who um, was at the Capitol on January 6th, and since his has a, a horrible, hor- harrowing story to tell about what has happened to his life since then. Um, Paul was one of the, I think, the first um, sentencing hearing that I covered. And I think it was at that moment 
that I realized what this government was capable of doing, what it planned to do to Trump supporters. And actually listening to it put me in tears, which is not an easy thing to do. So I've been communicating with Paul um, since he was released from jail. And we invited him on to to talk to him and to allow him an opportunity to tell his story about what he's been through. So, Paul, thanks so much for, for coming on. Hello. Thank you very much for having me today. So, Paul, why don't we just start from sort of the beginning? Um, you obviously are a Trump supporter, were a Trump supporter. Um, you were sort of not really involved in the campaign, but you were out there supporting him publicly. Why don't you talk a little bit about 2020, what you were doing, where you were working, what your life looked like uh, before January 6th happened? Well, in 2020, I actually was uh, a volunteer for the Trump campaign at the time. I uh, did a lot of neighborhood canvassing, phone banking for the campaign, and also did a lot of just field, uh, just free, uh, non-official campaign activities as well. There was a lot of flag waving events. We had a uh, phenomenal boat parades down here in the Bay Area for, which was a lot of fun. It felt like a dream come true that we did at the time, especially how bogged down 2020 was with our usual fun that we have otherwise because of the pandemic. And, and you're uh, and Paul, just to clarify, you live in Tampa, correct? Tampa, Florida. Yes, I live in Tampa, Florida. Uh, okay. Lived here for close to a decade now, uh, and it was a really great experience to do so. Uh, I've got to know a lot of really wonderful people in the area. Uh, people had a lot of good energy, a lot of uh, just helpful and good feel towards one another. Uh, 2020, I think a lot of us remember as being a very, very tough year on us for a lot of reasons. Uh, pandemic, you know, a lot of social wars going on, and then of course the election. But uh, that year, if I was working, uh, I had been working for about six, seven years as, as a steel uh, steel production company. I was a machinist there, and. Basically, uh, well, we know the way of 2020 election and how a lot of things changed for us at that point. Paul? Yes. Okay. Okay, so, you cut out. Keep going. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, you know, things, uh, like you said, we have uh, 2021 came along and, you know, we know what happened at that point. And uh, things certainly didn't take a turn for the better, especially not for me and not for a lot of people we know. And yeah, I'll, uh, you know, certainly looking back with all of it in hindsight, I would have done a few things certainly differently than I had. That's for certain. So what made you decide to go to the Capitol? How, why don't you explain, you know, how you got there and uh, what, you know, what motivated you to go? Yeah, well, let me just chime in and ask, like, what what did you think you were going to, right? Like, you went, and what what did you think you were going there? What was the sort of pretense of this event you were going to attend? Well, from election time all the way till January 6th, you know, I had felt pretty down and depressed, you know, badly. 
And initially, I really wasn't going to go uh, go to D.C. on January 6th. At first, I didn't want to just because I had been so depressed about everything. It's like my heart wasn't in it. It's not that I didn't still support Trump. I certainly did. But my feeling on it was, look, I've been like as down as can be about this. You know, what, what am I going to do? Spend all my time, effort and finances to go all the way up to D.C. and wave a flag around out in the cold, you know, probably just to get my heart broken all over again. Uh, but some of the other uh, coordinators and, you know, volunteers that I worked with throughout 2020 in the area around here were also going, you know, just to attend the rally. And it really encouraged me to join with them. So I think about a week and a half or so before January 6th, I broke down and said, all right, I'll come with you. And what I expected was basically what was already uh, going to be publicly going on, Trump's speech and, you know, a an outdoor rally at the Ellipse, which was massive, by the way. I can remember at one point I took, uh, took a few pictures up on an elevated spot around me. I couldn't even get uh, footage of the edge of the, the crowd that was there. It was so big. I couldn't even see the, the ends of it all around. How, how, did, you, how did you get to Washington, D.C. from Tampa? Uh, one of the other uh, Trump supporters in the area had sent me a link to uh, just a little bit south of where I live, down in Sarasota. A Women for Trump group had chartered a couple of uh, buses that were going from Sarasota up to D.C. And they had offered a package deal where you could take the round trip bus and also stay at... Uh, stay at a hotel in Arlington for you know a pretty reasonable price. And considering I was planning the trip last minute, that seemed like a pretty good deal. So I took the bus ride with Women for Trump. Uh, they were very happy to have me along. I was, you know, a young fella who was probably a little indifferent from most of the crowd that was that uh, I had traveled with. And they were a really nice, very friendly group of folks who I traveled with. I was very fortunate for that. That's and, a long. That's a long bus ride, isn't it? How long did it take you to get there? Uh, by bus, you know, it had a few, you know, pit stops along the way. I think altogether it took less than twenty hours. I've I've done the trek up and down the eastern seaboard, you know, many times. I'm from Boston originally, so I've gone between Florida and New England many, many times. Okay. Uh, but it was a long trek. Uh, you know, I was in good company, a lot of nice folks, like I said, and the the event that ha the incident that happened at Capitol Hill was really not what I expected. Uh, I had no idea that that specifically was going to happen. Uh, I just knew there would be a rally and a march on Pennsylvania Ave, and I thought that would pretty much be the gist of it. Uh, while I was there, it was, you know, pretty good feeling and a pretty good vibe you felt around people during leading up to the rally and during Trump's speech. Um, you know, even the march on Pennsylvania Avenue, I saw a lot of positive energy leaving the ellipse going down Pennsylvania Avenue. But as we know, uh, we know what happened at Capitol Hill that day. And so you went to Trump's speech? Yes, I did. Okay. So, and then after his speech, everyone starts to walk towards Capitol Hill, and you went oh, with yes. the group. Okay. Yep. 
massive crowd you saw just like a huge huge uh crowd flowing you know towards the street there basically the majority of everyone who went to his rally and so so then you get to capitol hill what did you see did you see that there was violence going on like what what did you observe once you got to capitol grounds I mean, initially, once I came towards the end of Pennsylvania Avenue, I did see not violence, but I saw lots of people crowding out on the lawn out around Capitol Hill, large, you know, groups of supporters with flags and basically standing around. And going up the hill, I just noticed, you know, crowds of people walking up towards the building and curiosity brought me up towards there. This was, you know, around the back side of the Capitol building. And to be honest, once I came closer to the building, I saw lots of people. But from that angle, I really didn't see any violence trans- uh, transpiring between people. There really wasn't from that side of the building any police presence that I saw there. And So you made your way to the east side of the building. So if you're walking from the ellipse, you your first approach is the west side. So did you go around to the, you said around to the back. So did you go to, to the east side of the Capitol building then? I believe so. Well, I came to the hill, you know, directly where Pennsylvania Avenue ends right near the hill there. And I believe it was probably the back eastern side. Um, There was no uh, police brigade and certainly nobody fighting with police outside that I saw there. Uh, I did eventually see uh, people just going into the building through open doors. Nobody had broken through the doors at that point. I just saw people walking in through there in a heavy crowd. And that's when I thought to myself, well, we came here to protest. I guess this is how we're protesting. Let's go. And I went in with, you know, much of the crowd that I saw going in through the open doors. Did you see police there with Capitol Police inside? Inside, I did see some Capitol Police. Uh, I didn't come up close with any at that point. I stayed, kept my distance and stayed uh, away. I, the only intera- uh, verbal interactions I had with any police was eventually uh, down a hallway. A few of them had stood by and said, guys, hold on. You can't, uh, you got to stay here. Can't go through this way. And then uh, eventually, the same police stood aside and said, all right, then just let us pass. And then eventually, a number of police had entered into the Senate chamber where they had verbally had told us, you know, had told us to leave, that we need to go, which at that point, I didn't argue. I did as I was asked. So, Paul, it just... I. I just want to give our listeners a full, like, full account of what you did. Okay. Um, so you were in the Senate chambers. You were there at the same time. You were there with Jacob Chansley, the quote-unquote QAnon shaman. Yes. So you were sort of up at the dais where he was or close to it. Um, there were police there. I've watched the video numerous times. Um, who had kind of followed Jacob Chansley into the Senate chamber. So talk about what what happened inside the Senate chambers when you were there. You had a Trump flag. Like, just give give the listeners, you know, some uh, some some details about 
what you did or and what you saw who you were with well uh actually when i first reached the senate chamber i wasn't completely sure that this was the senate chamber because to be honest in person that room appears a lot smaller than it always appeared to me on television uh but then i did recognize much of the drapery and setup in there and realized where we were uh there were some protesters already in the room a few also some who came in about the same time as me that's where i saw jake chansley he had been there probably a few minutes before i had at least um there was i think at least one or two uh police officers standing by in there they were staying pretty relaxed appeared to me at that point i did uh verbally as people were coming in towards the center of the room i verbally had said to other protesters which by the way i didn't know any of them from left to right nobody else who was there that i had ever met or even heard of in my life but verbally i had spoken out loud to some of them and i had said guys please please don't wreck anything in here and uh they did agree with me uh I was in there for barely even five minutes altogether. Uh, shortly after I was, that's when Jake Chansley had used his uh, his bullhorn where he had uh, called people and he wanted to initiate a prayer on the Senate floor, which many people right then took off their hats, you know, bowed their heads, some took a knee. Uh, I stood off to the side a few feet away from him and just stood still. and. Let him, let him recite his prayer that he made. Uh, just moment, just within a moment after he had finished, uh, that's when the brigade of uh, police had come in through the side of the room, and that's when they had instructed us to leave. And that's when I did. Just shortly before uh, Jake Chansley had initiated his prayer, I did find there was another protester on the floor who seemingly was wounded apparently he had been hit with a rubber bullet yes uh, right. in his face mm -hmm. and was bleeding out from it which i'd wanted to help him give him some first aid because i could tell he was not all right not okay uh he sort of just begged off and didn't want the help and he just appeared disoriented so i just let him go his way but and he had been shot by a police officer with a rubber bullet Correct. I would presume so. Yes. I would presume that must have been before he ever came to the Senate chamber because I didn't notice anybody firing rubber bullets in there. Right. But, uh, and like I said, of that, the whole experience in the Senate chamber lasted all but a few minutes for me. So then you decide to leave the Capitol building. Yes. Uh, after we were asked to leave by police, that's when I walked uh, up the aisleway towards the center of the room, out the first door that I came to. And then out in the hallway at that point, I wanted to make my way outside. Uh, so I found the first door, steps going downward outside. And that's when I found myself out towards, I believe, the front of the Capitol building and still you know large crowds of people outside there and things were pretty hectic i didn't stick around very long uh before i just made my way back towards uh towards the street and 
had found a few other, you know, Trump supporters from Florida that I knew of and made our way back to the hotels. So, and then did you guys head out the next day or did you guys leave that night? How, how'd you guys, when did you guys leave to get back? Well, the group that I had traveled with, the chartered bus, they had left from the hotels we had stayed at very early the next morning. Uh, so basically, eventually I just made my way back to the hotel I stayed at and, uh, just the next morning, made our trek back down to Florida with a few you know, pit stops the bus made along the way. So then, um, so I think, Paul, what you're describing uh, is what happened to a lot of January 6th uh, protesters, Trump supporters, however you want to describe them. Um, they went to D.C., you know, a lot of them went in groups. Some of them went by themselves. Some went with their family members. They wanted to go to listen to Trump's speech. Um, a lot of them said they weren't really planning to go to the Capitol. Uh, of course, President Trump urged people to go down there and have their voices heard. Um, but th then they just sort of got caught up in the moment because, and a, a lot of people too say what you're saying, they didn't really see any violence. Um, so a lot of the violence that was really perpetuated by the police started um, while Trump actually was still speaking or as he was wrapping up his speech. So, um, but they didn't really realize they were doing anything necessarily wrong. They certainly, like you're saying, didn't think they were doing anything criminal because the police were right there. And if what you guys were doing, um, you know, should you have gone in the Senate chambers? Probably not, but it doesn't right. really make it a crime, especially if you have police officers who are right there who aren't trying to arrest you, right? They finally said, okay, and I've seen the video of uh, the uh, police officer, I think his last name is Robichaud, something uh, along those lines, um, and just kind of followed you guys around and then said, okay, leave. Um, so then you get back home do you realize that there's a potential you could be in trouble after you're seeing the news coverage and, and you're seeing threats being made by the FBI and DOJ about they're going to hunt down people and arrest them? Like once you got home, wh what was your thought process then? And then explain how you were arrested. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, once I got home, I can tell you I really, really did not sleep well for a long while after this. Um, first of all, I didn't, uh, I only saw what was in my path of vision while I was at, at the Capitol that day. Okay. I didn't catch much, much more of all this footage and other things that went on and, you know, the tremendous fallout that followed with it. Um, now granted, a lot of things are very sensationalized by mainstream media over this, over this, but, um, yeah, you see a lot of reports coming out of, uh, the FBI's manhunt that began, you know, immediately afterwards. Uh, I can remember just a couple of days after coming home when I was driving to work one day, one of the digital billboards on the side of the uh, highway had uh, lit up, you know, with the FBI's uh, logo saying, you know, offering rewards for information for any uh, individuals uh, involved with uh January 6th, you know, that... Wait, started, there was a billboard? A digital billboard, yes. Uh, <laughs> right on the side of, 
I four, I believe. In uh, oh my god, and <laughs> that that was a a tremendous uh, sort of like a real made your heart skip a beat for a moment seeing that, and then many, you know, just the way the news reports, you know, so many you know clickbait ads about it that had come along and made me really really uh not feel good about anything at that point uh, i didn't uh i try uh tried to just tell myself look you know you didn't hurt anyone or anything while you were there you know you didn't steal anything so let's just hope and pray that that's going to carry me through on this uh as we know it did not uh, apparently, just my presence there was enough to bring the hammer down on me. And, uh, you know, it went its course the way it did. It was about five, six weeks following January 6th when I was arrested. And initially, uh, interestingly, you know, the investigation was not opened into me until January 21st. You know, if that tells you anything right there. But... Uh, you know, the trip, what happened that day was, you know, it's, I'll never forget it. Certainly never, ever forget it. How can you? And, you know, it's, I think it's probably still going to take us a while to unpack everything that's, you know, came and went from that day. It's going to take us a long time to really understand it all. So, Paul, how were you investigated? Explain how you were arrested did the FBI raid your house? Did they call you in? What what happened? How did the FBI uh, take you into custody? Had I known that there was a warrant for my arrest, uh, you know, I guess to produce one, they first have to be indicted by a grand jury in D.C. Had I known that there, uh, I was wanted by the FBI, I would have done the right thing and turned myself in. I hadn't had a chance to do so because so quickly after they had apparently uh you know at the crack of dawn the fbi had along with a few local police had come you know banging on my door very early hours of the day and i had been crawled out of bed with you know just a towel around my waist and when i answered the door they told me to put my hands up you know they came in and handcuffed me while i was naked and they came with an arrest warrant and a search warrant. Uh, they did go through my home. Uh, I was, I remained calm and I remained very respectful and cooperative. I didn't uh, show any hostility at all towards them. And I was taken to did the- Did they say what they were arresting you for? They did, uh, yes, they did uh, show me the warrant and the indictment with uh, the charges that were brought against me from the D.C. courts. Um, I was brought over to a federal. How many, Paul, how many, how many agents were there? Were they armed? Um, did they have SWAT vehicles? There what? was about uh, eight uh, individuals altogether, mostly FBI with just a couple of uh, local police. And... I ne thankfully, I never had a gun pointed at me. They were all armed. They had body armor that they were wearing. <laughs> uh, 
thankfully I didn't have any guns point drawn on me. And, but still, you know, it was basically a SWAT team that came to this little one bedroom apartment in a neighborhood here. And there was probably several cars, I would say, parked out in front of my house along the street. And yeah, I was arrested that morning, early in the day. Um, and then, you know, brought over to a federal courthouse in Tampa where I was bonded out the same day. Uh, I didn't have to spend any time pretrial in jail. Uh, I recall the public defender, he had explained to the judge, I had no prior record whatsoever. And the FBI did report that I was calm and cooperative with them. So, so Paul, um, I, you have armed agents with SWAT vehicles raid your house in the early morning. This has happened hundreds of times over the past 21 months. Treating you like a terrorist, hauling you off to a courthouse, federal courthouse on federal charges. And what were you charged with? I was a ch charge. The form, first uh, charge one was uh, charge 1512, impeding and obstructing a official proceeding. And that was followed by four other uh, apparently misdemeanor charges. Uh, disorderly conduct, parading and picketing inside a government building, knowingly entering and staying uh, in, on restricted grounds. And so I really want to emphasize this because this is what infuriates people. And this is what Republican lawmakers need to hear. You, Paul Hodgkins, did committed no violent crime on January 6th. You have no criminal record. You live alone. You're a working man, a, a, a good citizen, engaged in the political process, but yet you were treated by this FBI, these thugs, like you were a mass murderer. It, but at the end of the day, your charge was a nonviolent felony obstruction count and four misdemeanors. Now, what has happened to Paul and what Paul's describing literally has happened hundreds of times. People, this government, this Justice Department, um, bringing a ridiculous obstruction felony that's never been used in this way before, obstruction of an official proceeding. It was a post-Enron law that deals with tampering with evidence, has nothing to do with disrupting a, a congressional hearing. I mean, that well, is- Well, might I add, we've had several recent examples of congressional and Senate business being disrupted by people. Um, the Kavanaugh hearing was one. Um, the Code Pink and the progressives are constantly marching in during Senate confirmations or Senate hearings or congressional hearings and disturbing it. None of them are arrested and charged with this crime. That That is all. That is my point. <laughs> no, that's a great point, Liz, because I think that how unfairly this law has been applied and making it a felony. I mean, this is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Um, this is no joke. But disrupting a congressional hearing or meeting, that's like, isn't that like what we're constitutionally protected to do? When else are you going to protest your government? At night when no one's there? Like, it's absurd. It is. Um, and furthermore, Paul, you didn't obstruct anything. By the time you got into the Senate chambers, obviously no one was there. They had already 
adjourned, not adjourned, but they, you know, had shut down the, uh, what was happening, the joint session because of the breach of the Capitol. So you, Paul Hodgkins did not halt anything, but it doesn't matter because this is what this regime is doing. So, well, I want to touch upon that just briefly that, uh, I thought the timing of what, how all that had happened on January 6th was pretty interesting. Uh, because given the timeline of events right then, it wasn't until after uh, there was a motion in the Senate by, you know, which was signed off by Ted Cruz, where that they were going to debate uh, the electoral from the state of Arizona. And it wasn't until that got underway that, you know, there began to be a breach, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then also that it wasn't until right about then that protesters were able to make a breach and uh, start interrupting things where the Senate adjourned right when it did, or recessed as it did. And I but, think, too, I just want to point out, too, for people, it was not the counting of the electoral votes that was happening when the breach happened, right? What Paul just said, and it's really important to emphasize, what was going to happen on January 6th was they had enough senators and enough House Republicans by law to contest the electoral uh, votes in certain states. And this was going to go on all day. And they were going to start with required, I think, like two hours. I think it required two hours. You had to have one congressman and one senator. And there was it required that the, they return to their chambers and debate for, I believe, two hours over and I think this is on the record so certain information would be entered into the congressional record um so the right. the the point is that people wanted this process to play out they did not want to stop the process of and, debating about these electors and I think that might be a, a spot where a lot of us made a big mistake that we didn't realize because let's face it while we're outside protesting on Capitol Hill we're not glued to a television outside there knowing exactly what's going on so i think protesters didn't realize that you know initially but with ted cruz's signature that they were going to begin this debate and had they i think it would have been more likely people would have liked to have seen that go its course i think the last thing most protesters knew was once it hit twitter that mike pence was not gonna you know object to anything that that was the last straw and people were minds are made up okay if you're not going to hear our voice we're going to speak a little louder but paul can you can you um i just want to also kind of drill i want to talk about that a little bit because i've heard this a lot i've seen this um in court filings i've heard seen videos of people that day the reaction to mike pence releasing his letter after sort of teasing that he might do something that day waiting until the joint session convened at one o'clock to release his letter that he was not going to do anything. How did that, uh, how did the crowd react? I think that that really riled people up. And I think that Mike Pence um, holds some accountability for what happened. He did not have to wait until one o'clock that day to notify the president or the public that he didn't plan to do anything, which is fine. He didn't have to announce it at all, to be honest. He could have just done it. You know what I mean? Like that, it kind of was a provocative. Yes. I think the timing was very provocative. Let's I just think, say that. I think Mike Pence, what 
he should have done was not announce anything like you said and he should have exactly. allowed uh once especially once ted cruz had signed off on that uh to this motion he should have at least i think kept an open mind and be willing to listen while he presided over the senate for this you know he, that, that might not necessarily mean that he still was going to object or that he would would or would not but i think he should have you know at least kept an open mind and list, let the debate go its course before he made any kind of decision on that. Liz, but, I think that's such a good point, too, and what Paul is saying. Mike Pence didn't have to. He released, like, a three-page letter explaining why he wasn't going to do anything. He, he should have just done his business. He didn't have to make a big public announcement. And to the extent that he wanted to, why didn't he release the letter that morning? Now we have testimony from Mark Short, his chief of staff, that said by January 5th, they knew that Mike Pence was not going to do anything. So, Liz, your word is spot on. It was provocative. And it's unfortunate that Mike Pence has not answered for why he waited till the last minute uh, to do what he did, because it really did, to the extent people thought Pence might do something, which he never was going to, um, I think that that had a big impact on uh, what happened that afternoon. Yeah. I would agree. I would have to agree with that. The vibe that I've heard from a lot of people around me was that they were very, very upset and very displeased with Mike Pence at that point. But uh, not not even necessarily that he didn't do exactly what they hoped and wanted him to do. It's just that, you know, he didn't he didn't uh, at least let this debate and let this objection go its course before he could even make a decision. So that that didn't help at all, I don't believe. But uh, but back to what you were saying uh, a little bit earlier about, you know, the manner in which I was arrested. Uh, I've, I've heard correspondence uh, from, you know, different attorneys who have handled federal cases. And they said a nonviolent charge on someone who has no prior record, if it's only in the matter of trespassing or disorderly conduct, if it involves being arrested, it doesn't require you know, basically a SWAT team of individuals coming <laughs> and uh, that can, you can easily, you know, bring an arrest warrant with two officers casually. And generally when it's nonviolent and not of anything of hostility, that can go carry out just fine. This was unusual, I believe, the way uh, that was conducted. But <laughs> yes, to say the least. And, it, and it, it, I think it, the record shows that, you know, since I was bonded out and allowed to go home the same day, uh, shows that, okay, that was a little bit overkill. If you were willing to bond someone out so easily, then. But just Yeah, why didn't you have the opportunity to just turn yourself in? At, like I had said. Make such you know, a scene? Like I had said, had I known that I was uh, wanted by the FBI, I would have done so. I actually went online and checked the FBI's wanted list a few times leading up to this to see if my name was on it, which I never had seen that it was. And like, had I known that, I would have turned myself. I'm not going to run and hide. Okay, I'm not going to be a fugitive. Okay, I'm going to do the right thing. But uh, again, I just didn't have the chance to even do so. I was, you know, an arrest was made just about at the drop of a hat. So... So then you had to find an attorney. How did you find? Um, I will. Uh, I was initially I was uh, assigned a public defender, which, by the way, the public defender I had uh, for my case in the D.C. court, I really did like the attorney I had. Uh, she was very kind, very friendly. She seemed, 
seemed very competent. What was her name? Who did you have? Miss uh, Akbong Yubong was her name. Okay. And uh, I, with everything in hindsight, I really wish I had just kept her to represent me and gone that course. Uh, I had never been in trouble before. I was, you know, given how sensationalized and how loud the whole January 6th incident was, I did feel pretty intimidated. So I thought I would make, you know, a smart investment and hire some uh, very established and aggressive uh, representation for me, which I did. And to do so, that was, to be honest, that was even, my decision to do that was an even bigger mistake than the decision I made on January 6th. I'm, I'm really not going to even mention the uh, the attorney's name who I did hire, but for reasons he, uh, she did uh, work in their own interest more than my, my own. And in hindsight, like I said, I really wish I had stuck with the public defender I was assigned to uh, from the get-go. How much did you have to spend on your attorney that you hired? Uh, for reasons I don't want to list a dollar amount, but in, I will say I did basically dump my life savings onto the attorney that I hired. And, and Paul, you're you're a working class guy, right? You're you're not you know independently wealthy. No, I'm not. I've worked in American manufacturing for about 20 years now. Okay. And attorneys are expensive, especially. Oh yeah, <laughs> they are very expensive, <laughs> very for uh, criminal defense. So you hired him and he's working with the government and he advises you to do what? Well, he had advised me to basically plead guilty to the first uh, plea offer that's made. And, you know, given the list of charges that I had against me, I believe that, you know, I really, if I could go back, I would not have pled guilty to the charge that I was initially offered up front. I believe that that should have been negotiated more. Uh, had I eventually been given a plea offer for disorderly conduct or picketing and uh, protesting in a government buildings, one of the like, which each one of those had a maximum sentence of up to six months, which, by the way, many, many protesters for that day have had said plea offer and have served little to no jail time for it, you know, for having some of which even had more uh, involvement and more blatant behavior that day than I did and got misdemeanor plea offers and little to no jail time. But anyways, uh, for his own selfish reasons, my attorney at the time rushed me to plead guilty to that charge. The very first person, uh, you know, from the whole January 6th incident that was... You were the first to plead guilty to the obstruction felony, correct? Correct. There was one individual who he pled guilty uh, to a felony charge a few months, uh, about two months, I think, prior to when I did. But he had a very different kind of case that involved a lot of cooperative uh, enhancements uh, with the FBI. And I think, I don't know to this day that he's even been sentenced. Yet. I don't think he has. I, and he had, he had, I think he, you're, it, he's one of the Oath Keepers, right? Yeah, uh, John Schaefer was one of the yes. founders of the Oath Keepers. And he, 
he had a very different case that was handled very different than mine, more complicated. And I think they're leading up to in the weeks leading up to my sentencing, there was a couple of uh, misdemeanor sentences, which only were given probation and community service. And uh, but I was the first uh, felony sentencing that happened from January 6th. And. Uh, again, with things in hindsight, I believe if I had stuck with my initial representative, you know, a public defender, her, her strategy probably would have been a little different. Yeah, many people have done well to plead out with their cases, but again, I was at that point in the last year, I think Jake Chansley and myself were about the only two people who pled to charge 1512 who didn't also have violent charges brought against them. Right, right. Uh, if you have violent charges brought against you, then maybe it's not a bad idea to plead out to that charge because if that's your worst charge, that you know theoretically they can be a little more forgiving in sentencing. But uh, people who have no prior record and no violent uh, charges brought against them, you know that is a very overkill charge to plead out to, and. Uh, Really, that is something that I do regret with that in hindsight. It is. Uh, it is. Paul, it, and so you were sentenced to eight months in jail. Yes, I was sentenced to oh. eight months in federal prison, uh, followed by two 24 months of supervised release and a $2,000 uh, fine. Uh, well, $2,000 restitution, excuse me. But the to be honest, the j the jail time really wasn't the most painful thing for me. Had it been that I had pled guilty to one of the misdemeanor charges and which had a maximum of six months and I had been sentenced to some jail time for that. I mean, yeah, jail, jail sucks. Nobody wants to go there, but I still could have moved on with my life, you know, much more easily than I can now. Uh, felony conviction is the most painful thing. So you spent your the lawyer entire... didn't want to fight this? Like your lawyer think... didn't didn't try it didn't want you to like fight the felony charge i wanted to fight the felony charge i said from the beginning i do not want to plead guilty to a felony for this of course i want to avoid jail time but uh you know what's even worse than jail time is felony conviction that's jail time is temporary you know once that's done it's done you can move on with your life you once you're a felon you know unless you can get pardoned by a governing body. You're a felon for the rest of your life once it comes down from the federal courts. And uh, so, what has that meant for your life since you got out of jail? Well, I have been stripped of certain rights that I have. Uh, my Second Amendment rights, you know, are gone at this point. I, while serving probation, at least, I cannot vote. Or I cannot vote, nor can I run for any public office. Uh, even after I'm done with probation, there's certain, if I obtain a passport, there's certain countries that, you know, will never allow me any entry. Uh, Canada, I can probably never, ever travel to. Uh, well, that's no well loss. As, yeah, well, I mean, there are some beautiful parts of Canada that I would love to visit, you know, but 
you know, I'll have to basically take that off my bucket list now. A few other countries, I think Australia, New Zealand, also prohibit U.S. felons from ever entering. And, uh, you know, basically it is a very black mark. I had a, I received a letter in the mail later on from uh, a finance company that was handling a 401k account saying that they have decided to discontinue uh, service for my, uh, my account with them. I've uh, was let go from the job that I had worked for seven years leading up to that uh, sentencing, which, by the way, I was right, right on the doorstep of a great promotion at that. Right. Paul, I remember listening to your sentencing hearing and it was so emotional listening to you basically beg for mercy. The government wanted you in jail for 18 months, right? That was their sentencing recommendation, correct? Correct. So in your 15 to 21 months, 18 was what they were asking. Um, And your judge, who was your judge? Uh, Judge Randolph Moss. Randy Moss. So he heard you beg for for mercy, explaining that you live alone. You are about to get this apprenticeship. You know, you would lose your your house. You would lose your cats. Liz is a cat person. I think you had two cats. Oh, who boy. No, no one would be able to take care of. And I remember just thinking this judge surely is going to have mercy on this man. And he didn't. And he he knew your life, your future was in jeopardy and he didn't care. Um, and sentenced you to eight months. So I just want to emphasize that also who's responsible for this travesty are these judges too. So I know we're getting, we're getting class close to our wrap up time and, and I hate to rush, but um, just talk where you are now job wise, you know, things, your people who have canceled you businesses who have canceled you like th- there's so many ramifications to this. Oh yes. Uh, there's, I had a lot of vitriol come my way uh, since my sentencing uh, mainstream media, a lot of left-wing journalism certainly was not very kind, uh, you know, sensationalized this very badly, you know, painted me to be something, I think, far, far more and far worse than what I truthfully am. Uh, my job I lost at the time was very painful. Uh, however, I was, I did also at the same time receive a lot of love and a lot of support from a lot of good people. Uh, folks who were very helpful to me and it wasn't easy but thankfully I was able to keep my home where I rent and I was able to keep my two cats uh I had a very uh yes I had a very supportive and very loving girlfriend at the time who was able to help me and occupied my home and cared for them while I was serving out my sentence and that I'm truly grateful for I'm grateful for all the people who have stood by me and stood up for me. Um, I have since then, since I came home, I am gainfully employed again. I work for uh, another company where I make uh, traffic control equipment and I operate heavy machinery for that. Uh, I spent a few months doing different temp assignments just to get by until I was hired here. and, you know, I hopefully I just keep on the climb and keep uh, improving my life since then. Of course, in today's America, with, you know, inflation the way it is, that's a lot harder than it used 
to be. You know, your dollars don't go nearly as far as they used to. But sure, that's a whole different topic of debate, which I'd love to have at some point. Uh, <laughs> there's still a whole lot of story that I can, I'd love to tell. I know we're, today we're limited on our podcast, but uh, yeah, so oh. much more to tell. I'll be happy to come on again if you'd like to have me. And yes. And I just want to point out one really important thing, and that is that this DOJ in its sentencing memo to you, Paul, and to many others, compared you to a domestic terrorist. And that is why they feel justified in asking for these excessive prison sentences for nonviolent, ridiculous felonies like obstruction. They're saying that they're, they want to over-sentence people for more acts of domestic terrorism which they think January 6th was, and it is designated an act of domestic error. So, but Paul Hodgkins, you are not a domestic terrorist. No one who was involved in January 6th, except for the federal agents who were there provoking the whole thing, um, are domestic terrorists. Um, but this is part of the destruction crusade by this DOJ for against Trump supporters. Yeah, I would uh, have to agree with you on that. Uh, certainly has been an upfront experience for me. But... I uh, hope I can only just hope that we have better days ahead and that we can overcome that. Paul, um, if for our listeners or other people who want to help you out in some way, um, because I get that, uh, you know, question all the time. How can we help these people? Do you have like a give, send, go account or if people wanted to donate to help you out, recompensate you for your legal fees that were excessive but not helpful um where can people find you or help you out well actually uh after my sentencing one of the community patriots here in my area uh did start a give send go fundraiser in my uh favor which god bless her thank her so i thank her so much for doing so but uh the page for that was givesendgo.com forward slash patriot paul and uh, yeah, I'm very gracious for all the people and all the love that they've sent my way and that they've, you know, helps me feel like the world isn't against me. And uh, anyone can log on to that or uh, otherwise, you know, thoughts and prayers are always most appreciative, certainly. Yes. Well, thank you, Paul, for joining us um, on Happy Hour. And thank you, listeners, for joining us this week. Uh, Julie, will we be back next week? What is next week? I Yes, we will, Liz. We will be back. 21st. So, yes, we will be back next week. If you haven't, you can go to iTunes and subscribe to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.